this old cemetery is looking as old and decrepit as I feel. I can't believe I've lived long enough to return. I was last here on Halloween night, seven years ago. I never thought then I'd be back. But a promise is a promise. I told them I'd come back every seven years until... Well, until I joined them in here, permanently. Sleepless Sanctuary Cemetery. <laughs> Three S's. Our little nod to that old codger, Stevie King. But there are no pets here. Just the remains of those no-sleep podcast regulars from days gone by. Who knew I'd outlive them all? And so here I am on Halloween night, paying my respects, leaving mementos for them. Flowers, jars of jam from that nice lady, burnt nickels, whatever trinkets suit them best. But let's be honest, I do this more for myself than them. They're gone, lost to the winds of time, like sand through the hourglass, as it were. No one remembers them anymore, but I do. Ah, look here. The grave of one of our renowned writers, L.P. Hernandez. Now, what is that inscription? Amado y extrañado? Oh, I probably said that wrong. Lo siento, L.P. Mi español es muy malo. Oh, well, I, I remember a story of his we did so long ago. How ironic that here, in a cemetery, I speak of the, uh, the, the, the opposite end of the circle of life. That is, being born. Imagine a child wanting to stay home for the birth of his sibling rather than trick-or-treating. Now, if I recall, it was the team of, of Mike Delgadio... Erica Sanderson, Dan Zapula, Kristen DiMercurio, Mick Wingert, and Graham Rowett, who performed that one. So rest peacefully, LP. You're remembered after death, just as we remember your afterbirth. The house was alive with activity, doors opening and closing, a constant tattoo of shoes upon the wooden steps, which screeched like a surprised barn owl. It was a beehive, or perhaps a hornet's nest. To Agnus, it was all very exciting. At four years old, he did not understand many things, but he knew this day was different. The influx of smiling faces the endless stroking of the peach fuzz lining his cherub cheeks by hands both familiar and not. With each new arrival came a fresh gust of autumn through the front door. Eddies of smoke-tinted air escorted flurries of sun-colored leaves into the foyer, like spiders escaping the cold. It was Halloween, but trick-or-treating was not on the table this year. He understood today he was to become something new, something he had never been before. His father crouched to eye level, 
and brushed aside a swoop of dusty blonde hair. Big day for my little man. Big day for our family. Don't worry about that Halloween stuff. It's not real. The priest from church, a man so tall Agnus knew the structure of his chin better than his face, placed a hand on his father's shoulder. A very important day for you, Agnus. For all of us. Agnus thought the man had the most unusual voice, as if the inside of his throat was made of tree bark, a thin and peely kind. It made him shudder, like the time he bit into a packing peanut, not knowing what it was. Father Paul petted his head once, then clasped his hands together behind his back in his typical manner. He stomped up the stairs as if his actual destination was the basement and his manner of reaching it was pulverizing the wood beneath his boots. That's where Mommy was, in the special room. Although many church members made the same journey that day to the special room, Agnus was not permitted. He asked his father why this was so. She doesn't want you to see her in pain. It's just not the right time, buddy. But the other people... His father mussed his hair. Oh, they don't matter, buddy. Not the way you do. Just wait, buddy. You're going to be the star of the show. Agnus sat on the stiff couch in the living room with the family Bible on his lap. He could not read more than his own name, but he enjoyed the pictures and how the book binding felt cool to the skin of his bare legs. It was beginning to warm in the house with so many bodies moving in and out. He flipped through the pages as that word repeated in his mind like a new heartbeat. Brother. 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 Some church ladies descended the stairs, dabbing at their wet eyes with tissue, mascara like rivers of smoke caressing their cheeks. The mixture of happiness and tears was confusing to Agnus, and he had witnessed this exercise repeated throughout the day. Visitors, all of them from church, were ushered upstairs. Once, he thought he heard his mother murmuring amid the other soft voices speaking just above a whisper. After a few minutes, they returned, sometimes loitering in the entryway. Occasionally, they strayed into the living room to brush a finger across Agnus's cheek. Agnus accepted the affection, but trained his eyes on the staircase, hoping to see the smiling face of his father, beckoning him to the place Mommy was. But it was never his father's face, just the folks from church. Some dressed like they were going to a Halloween party right after. The boy avoided even the brush of a finger from these. They got to see Mommy and celebrate Halloween, and he was stuck downstairs with a book he could not read. A man Agnus did not recognize approached, his thumbs hooked inside his belt loops. The stream of visitors had slowed as the afternoon progressed. Agnus wasn't sure, but he believed it was just his parents and the priest upstairs and this stranger in the living room. What do you have there, son? The man nodded at Agnus's lap. Agnus frowned. This man was not his father. He hovered over the boy and flipped the book over to expose the cover. Your parents taught you well. That book? It's all you need in life, son. Agnus squirmed at the word, son. He raked his long fingers through Agnus's hair the skin tingling along the path traced by his fingernails. The sensation began at the scalp and terminated as a pile of cold salamanders in his stomach. 
There was a shriek from upstairs, his mother in pain. Agnus attempted to stand, but was held in place. Not the time, son. The stranger stalked across the living room, moving as if he was underwater. He paused at the base of the stairs and nodded to Agnus. It's okay to feel left out, son. But you have the most important job of all. Brother. 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 Agnus glared and said nothing, his scalp still fizzing where the stranger touched him. This was becoming a Halloween to forget. If being a brother was so important, why was he trapped downstairs with a book he could not read? Daddy said he would need to help the little brother grow, that it was an awesome responsibility and only he could do it. Agnus smiled at that and flipped open the Bible again. Though he could not read the words, he enjoyed the pictures. Hours later, the daylight leaked from the living room and Agnus wondered if his father had forgotten about him. He placed the book on the coffee table and tiptoed to the stairs. Men's voices mixed with the sound of his mother moaning. He recognized his father's, a steady drone seldom rising or falling in pitch. Often louder was the voice of the priest. He sounded like he did at church. It was so hard to fall asleep in church when that man was yelling. When a door creaked open, Agnus sprinted to the couch, retrieving the Bible and setting it on his lap. Sorry, buddy. His father turned the living room light on, chasing the long shadows away. He was wearing his church outfit, the one he only wore sometimes on special days. Sweat dappled his forehead and soaked the scooped neck of his robe. He eyed the book on Agnus's lap and smiled, noting that it was upside down. Come on, big brother, let's have a bite. Agnus followed his father into the kitchen. It had been a long day, but he had not been forgotten. What would you eat if you could eat anything? His father smiled so broadly Agnus felt warmth blossom in his chest. Anything? His father pursed his lips. Anything in the house. The stuff mommy and me tell you not to have, the stuff only for after you've eaten all your vegetables, that kind of stuff. Agnus pictured the pantry and then the refrigerator. Pudding? No, he sometimes got that even when he didn't eat his vegetables. Peanut butter and jelly. It was his favorite, but not special enough. He mentally opened drawers and cabinets. Ice cream. For dinner? Agnus nodded. Ice cream for dinner it is. And you know what? You don't even need a bowl, just a spoon. Agnus clambered up the bar stool at the kitchen island as his father rummaged through the freezer. He emerged with a carton of ice cream Agnus instantly recognized as his favorite. Don't tell mom. His father placed the ice cream in the microwave. Otherwise, we have to wait for it to soften. You know, I bet your brother will like ice cream too. What do you think? Really? He set the microwave for 15 seconds. Uh, not right away. Right now he needs food to help him grow, but when he's older, maybe. Despite the tension in his belly, Agnus smiled. By the time he reached the bottom of the carton, it was mostly a puddle of sweet cream, but still delicious. Agnus abandoned his spoon, pressed the carton to his lips, and slurped. Wow, that was impressive. Agnus smiled and wiped his mouth with the back of his arm. Is it almost time, Daddy? 
The numbers on the microwave clock were blurry. It was well past his bedtime. His father nodded. If all goes well, Agnes, it's almost time. The man did not look at his son as he said this. Instead, he looked out the window to the fat, orange moon, its facade pixelated by the naked, trembling branches of the oak tree in the backyard. That reminds me. His father rubbed his hands together, then glided across the kitchen and squeezed Agnes's shoulder as he passed. In his absence, Agnes realized his mother's wail was both louder and more persistent. A fancy new outfit on your special day, big brother? Agnus hopped off the stool and sprinted to reach his father. For me? For you! It was a miniature version of the clothes his father wore, the special clothes. Only, his robe was white instead of black. His father kneeled. Now, and this is the silly part, you have to be all the way naked to put it on. Agnus was halfway out of his clothes before his father finished the sentence. The robe was cool, almost cold against his skin. Perfect. Now let me go check on Mommy and I'll be right back. Agnus twirled in his new outfit, laughing at his reflection in the glass of the oven door. Upstairs, the cries grew louder and louder, Father Paul's leathery voice rising in concert. Agnus returned to the stairs, the ice cream in his belly feeling sour then. He wanted to race to his mother's side to take the pain away from her. Last night, she stayed in his bedroom long after she finished reading his favorite book. She happy cried, her sweet breath tickling the fine hairs of his ear as she whispered lullabies to him. Agnus was a bit old for lullabies, but it meant something to his mother, and so he did not fight. Good children gather near and far to dance beneath the morning star. He'd fallen into sleep with his mother's words in his mind and had the most wonderful dreams. The noise upstairs reached a crescendo. Too many sounds at once and all of them terrible. Agnus sat on the bottom step, tracing his finger along the symbols carved into the black vellum of the family Bible. Many of the symbols adorned the walls of the house, though Agnus did not understand their meaning. Agnus did not want to be a big brother. He felt foolish in his white robes, the hem already speckled with dust from the floor. He felt forgotten, the house still reeking of the odors of the dozens of people who passed through it earlier in the day. Had there been such a procession for his birth? Agnus did not think so. In between outbursts, he heard the happy chatter of trick-or-treaters outside and occupied his time rushing to the window to watch them pass. There were all kinds, zombies and vampires, skeletons and princesses. Agnus giggled as two friends dressed as Chinese food passed in front of his house, one limping and grimacing at his shoes. The upstairs door creaked open, and only then did Agnus realize the house was still again. No screaming, no cries of pain. The blinds snapped back into place as he raced to the bottom of the stairs. Agnes? This was followed by the creaks of his father's descent down the stairs. Agnus quickly stood and smoothed his robe, brushing aside the dust bunnies that collected along the bottom. His father appeared on the landing, carrying a bucket, which appeared to hold substantial weight. 
careful I don't splash this on you, little man. Agnus followed him into the kitchen, his nose scrunching at the acidic odor. His father did not go to the sink, as Agnus would have guessed, but to the stove, where a large pot sat on a burner. What's that? His father thumbed sweat from his brow. That? He nodded at the bucket. That's for leftovers. His father sucked in an exaggerated breath and mouthed the word stinky as he waved his hand in front of his face. Well, little man, it's time. It is? I get to see mommy? And? And my brother. That's right. You got a potty or anything? Agnus shook his head. You sure? Last chance. Agnus shook his head again. Okay, head up to the door. I'll catch up. Agnus pressed his knuckles to the door, but did not knock. There were soft sounds coming from the room. Pleasant sounds. No more shouting. He had not heard his father scale the steps, but he was suddenly behind, placing a hand to the small of Agnus's back. It's okay. Agnus turned the knob and allowed the door to open on its own. The room was very dark. The only source of light, a cluster of candles above the headboard. Shadows stretched and shrank as the flames flickered. Go on, it's your big day. Agnus crossed the boundary into the room and shivered, his breath billowing in misty puffs. He did not hear the door close or the thud of the deadbolt sliding home. He stepped toward the light and did not hear the crinkling of plastic behind him or his father humming as he went about his task. His mother was as beautiful as ever, but she was not alone in the room. The priest stood at the window, his eyes fixed on the moon. The stranger from earlier, the one who called Agnus' son, sat in the far corner. Almost no light reached him, but there was enough of a residual glow for Agnus to notice. He looked different, larger somehow. And though it should not have been possible, Agnus could still see his eyes even though no light shined upon them. Agnes, come meet him. The boy hesitated, fidgeting in his new white robe. It's okay, buddy. This is what you're here for. Agnus watched his father for a moment as he smoothed the clear plastic tarp on the floor. The man gave a thumbs up, which Agnus quickly mirrored. He scurried the remaining distance and stood at his mother's side. Isn't he beautiful? She pulled back the blanket, revealing the back of the head. His hair is black like mommy and daddy's. Agnus frowned. The hair was black, but there was too much of it. His mother adjusted the bundle so it faced Agnus. He looks just like his father. Her fingers, the same fingers that traced lazy patterns across Agnus's back only the night before, smoothed the fine down of his face. Daddy? Agnus looked to his father. He now wore the hood with little holes for eyes. He shook his head and lifted his arm, pointing to the corner of the room where the other man sat. He's going to do so many important things, Agnus. So many important things for the world. And you get to help. I do? Yes. Right now, you have the most important job of all. The priest turned away from the window and rolled up his sleeves. 
He cleared his throat and loosened the top button of his shirt. The creature resting on his mother's chest opened its eyes. They were black and glossy, little fires twinkling in their inky depths like distant nebula. The plastic crinkled again as the priest joined Agnes's father on the tarp. In the far corner, the other man stood, the floorboards beneath him groaning. His eyes, the only part of him Agnus could see clearly, hovered near the ceiling. What is it? He wondered what the neighborhood kids would think of his little brother. Would they make fun of him for his looks? Agnus would have to protect him. He was a big brother now, after all. He stood a little taller. He had been told many times that day that this was the most important job. His mother lifted her hand from the baby's fur and stroked Agnus's cheek. She smiled once, then directed her gaze to her husband and nodded. Why, you get to be the first to feed him. This cemetery always feels cold. I'm quite certain I could come here in an August heat wave and it would still chill my old bones. Oh, well. Oh, look here. The grave of author Carol Rene. A very talented writer, to be sure. Funny how we did a story of theirs which deals with this very night. Oh, for some people, this is a night to engage in fun and frivolity. Ah, to be young again. But it's not easy being a parent who has to get children ready for the festivities. Now, who performed that story? Oh, yes, yes, it was Nicole Doolin, Danielle McCrae, Ellie Hirschman, and, uh, oh, Nicole Goodnight, yes. So make no bones about it. <laughs> this story is a good old-fashioned Halloween party. It's autumn, a beautiful time of year. There is still a scattered dusting of red and gold atop the oak trees in our neighborhood, though most of the leaves have fallen. The neighbors have raked them into piles and the burning has begun. I wonder what else they'd like to burn, if they need to get rid of the past. Smoke overhangs the streets, the houses. A curl of it circles over our fence, which is not high enough to keep it out. I don't mind, though it makes me cough. Aunt Margaret died a few weeks ago, which makes me glad. She left me her house in Gros Pathé. Who else did she have to leave it to? She knew she could trust me to clear it out and clean up her mess. Some stuff I buried, other stuff I burned. I found the Mama doll, but didn't give it to Gemma. I threw it in the burn barrel and watched the doll's face melt away. In our yard, leaves crunch under our feet when we go out to play. They'll lay there, dead and dying. 
until rain and melting snow turn them to mush. I don't mind that either, although it does make a mess in the kitchen when they're tracked in. It's a small price to pay for happy children. I have three of them now. Alex is five. He started kindergarten in September. Every day he brings home a new drawing. This week it's pumpkins. Josh is four. He studies the crawly things in our yard with a magnifying glass. He wants to be a scientist when he grows up. Gemma is three. She likes to cook. (laughs) That makes one of us. My husband, Ben, is a truck driver. He delivers beer 12 hours a day. It's a good living if you don't mind the hours. Guess what he does when he gets home? He tells me it's hard work and that a man is entitled to a little recreation after a hard day. All the recreation he gets starts with snapping open a flip-top and ends with him passed out on the living room couch. I've gotten used to the sight of him that way, but it hasn't done our love life any good. Halloween is coming. The kids are excited. There's a lot of discussion going on about costumes. Alex needs a costume for his kindergarten Halloween party. He can't decide whether to go as Spidey or a pirate. Josh can't decide between a cartoon scientist he's seen on TV or a ghost. I hope he opts for the ghost. Gemma doesn't have an opinion. I still do her thinking for her. Ariel or Belle because they're easy. All she really wants is the candy. Today, I bought the pumpkin. I packed lunches for the kids and we picked up Alex on the way out of town. They had a picnic in the back seat. I know, I know. I shouldn't have done it. They made a mess. Now I'll have to clean it out. But it was too nice a day to just get any old pumpkin at the grocery store. They'll remember this pumpkin. The one we got at the pumpkin patch. You should have seen their eyes light up when we got there. Out front sat a pumpkin three feet tall on bales of hay, with a scarecrow, a ghost, a skeleton, and three crows. I'm not fond of skeletons. More like I'm terrified of them. But I don't want the kids to catch my fear. I looked the other way. I want that one. Yeah, Mom, it's perfect. Just like my picture. Then they started the please, please, please chorus. Gemma, too. No. Why not? Yeah, why not? Please? Because it's too heavy to pick up. It's too big to fit in the car. And it's the display pumpkin. It's not for sale. They settled for having their pictures taken next to the gargantuan orange monstrosity. Then we hit the pumpkin patch. Row upon row of orange delight, peeking out of furry, withering yellow leaves. Tall ones, thin ones, short, squat ones. Of course, some were more perfect than others. It was the misshapen ones that intrigued Josh. He kept asking why. Why had they grown into such odd shapes, so unlike normal pumpkins? How does anything get twisted? I couldn't give him a good answer. Evil needs no reason, a voice whispered suddenly, as it had whispered before. It's all in the genes, I said, because it was science. He nodded his head up and down, satisfied his mother had given him the truth. He is only four. The children scattered to the wind. 
Each child found a pumpkin they thought was perfect. Finally, I said, this is a family decision. We have to do this together. Chasen, the boys walked slowly down the row while I held Gemma's hand. Finally, we found the perfect pumpkin. Not too big, not too small, just right. Alex went for the farmer. They came back with a little red wagon and a machete. The farmer put the pumpkin in the wagon and took it to the way station. The boys dragged it out to the car while I paid for it. I had to put it in the trunk, all 27 pounds. On the ride home, I pondered the age-old conundrum. What's for dinner? It's soup weather. I got a flash of Aunt Margaret. Not really my aunt, but the nurse who delivered me. Stirring a big pot of grungy stuff after she vivisected the stray cat. Straining off gray crud with black fur in it. Waiting for the meat to fall away and the skeleton to pop out. She loved skeletons, I knew. I couldn't get that smell out of my mind. Wanted to stop the car and puke, but didn't. The only soup my kids get comes out of a can. I'm not a vegetarian. I can manage hot dogs and hamburgers, chicken, turkey, but mostly we eat healthy. Lots of fish. Lots of vegetables. Ben complains. It's a challenge. While I made dinner, the kids were designing pumpkin faces on pieces of paper. Alex opted for scary, while Josh preferred something more ghostly. Gemma drew two eyes and a great big smile in a circle. Pretty good for her. Now that dinner's over, we have to carve it. Not my first rodeo. This job is going to be a mess. I cover the kitchen table with newspaper... I take my sharpest knife and run it through the electric grinder just for good measure. I stand over that pumpkin holding my knife in my hand like a dagger, just like Aunt Margaret. Three little faces are gathered round, holding their breath, waiting for me to make the first incision. I plunge the knife into the pumpkin, and it gets stuck. I tug. I pull. The awe chorus starts up. I'd curse out loud if the kids weren't here. I'm just not strong enough. This is a man's job. Where is he when I need one? The kitchen door opens. It's Ben. My hero has arrived. Here, Mr. Braun. I point at the pumpkin with my open palm. Take over. I take off before he can say anything. I flip through the channels on the TV. It's scary movie here and there and everywhere. The one with Abbott and Costello is on the old movie channel. I was a little kid the first time I saw it. When the skeleton came out of the wall, I dove under my seat. I sat on the floor quaking until the girl who took us to the movie pulled me out. I watched the rest of it through my fingers, with my hands over my eyes to block out the bad parts. I couldn't figure out why everyone else was laughing. Ben's carving. The kids are hooting over his mistakes. Everyone's having a good time. I like happy. I settle for a soppy old love story with a happy ending. Like mine. Eventually, the pumpkin has a face. They bring it out to show me on the way to the front stoop. 
It will sit there until maybe November 8th or 9th. By then, it will be weathered and withered. And it won't weigh as much when I have to carry it to the garbage can. Pumpkins don't have bones, but they do have flesh, and it can rot. I send the kids off to bed. I clean up the mess, and no, I don't save the seeds for roasting. I give Ben his supper. He remembers to say thank you. That makes me feel good, so I kiss him on the cheek. We don't talk much anymore. It's late, so he heads to bed without the detour to the couch. I claim it for the rest of the evening. The first time I went to a Halloween party, I wasn't as old as Gemma. It was a sleepover at Aunt Margaret's. Joanna was older than me, maybe six or seven. She lived with Aunt Margaret. I'd known Joanna my entire life. She had a mama doll that had beautiful black hair, pink cheeks, and red lips. It was bigger than most dolls, and it talked. I wanted to play with it, but she wouldn't let me. She just hugged it tighter. I told her she was mean, and she frowned and glared. But then, wanting to be my friend again, she put her finger to her lips to make what we were about to do a secret, and took me to a room by Aunt Margaret's and a little closet there. Inside, she showed me a shelf of tiny skulls. Baby skulls. Aunt Margaret got these from her hospital. She announced proudly and said, You can play with these if you want. I didn't want to and said so. And then suddenly Aunt Margaret was there dragging Joanna off. Joanna pleading, I won't do it again. I promise, Aunt Margaret, I promise. Trembling hard enough that my hands shook, I took the mama doll Joanna had dropped and went to Joanna's room to play with it, but my heart wasn't in it. In about an hour, my mother honked outside and I went to the car. Where's Aunt Margaret? My mother asked. I don't know. I answered. I didn't, but I knew Aunt Margaret and Joanna were together somewhere. Aunt Margaret stopped inviting me over, and I never saw Joanna again. One year, my grandmother made me a gypsy outfit. I raided the bead box and made half a dozen necklaces to wear with it. Another time, I wanted to go as an angel. Grandma made me a pink gown with flowing sleeves and a gold cord belt. Then she made wings and a halo for me. That was a good year. Ben tells me I haven't been sleeping well. He says I've been flailing around, crying out in my sleep. How can I tell him about the skulls in the closet? How can I tell him that Joanna's skull and skeleton dance in my dream? As she says, I was real. I was alive. I had a name. My name was Joanna. I know Joanna. I tell her, Don't forget me, Joanna whispers. The kids are invited to a party at the Whitfields' house after begging on Halloween night. I've heard they do a bang-up job, a bonfire, scary things in all the corners, a soundtrack rigged up on a boombox. The boys are gung-ho to go. Gemma keeps asking, How many more days? She counts them on her fingers as best she can. The only thing is, the parents have to wear costumes too. I've been thinking about it. Yes, I'm going to go as a skeleton. If anyone asks my name, I won't answer Sue or Mrs. Ross. I'll tell them her name, Joanna. 
I want the children to be happy, even the dead ones. Some people like the sound of fallen leaves crunching under their feet. It's a shame the only thing crunching under my feet are candy bar wrappers left over from that bus station in Whitefall. So much litter and pollution. Well, goodness me, what do we have here? The grave of that old school teacher, Marcus Demanda. Ah, he did a fair bit of writing back in his day, too. Although fall wasn't his season, he was more of a summer person. <laughs> no one around to get that great joke. Marcus wrote a lot about Halloween for us, and I believe he also wrote about the day after Halloween. Yes, that's right. It was performed by that troupe of actors of uh, David Alt, Mary Murphy, Nicole Goodnight, Matthew Bradford, Graham Rowitz, Jeff Clement, and Kristen DiMercurio. Oh, well, now I wish I had baked something to leave by Marcus's grave. I'm not a good baker, so I hope any I made would be bittersweet treats. It takes 25 minutes to bake a dozen souls. At four o'clock on the eve of All Saints' Day, I turned off the stove, pulled on my trusty oven mitt, and drew out the first batch. There they were on the baking sheet, fresh and still bubbling, seeming to breathe as they expanded and contracted under the overhead fan. I left them on the stovetop, kneed the oven door shut, and wiped sweat from my brow. I took a moment just to inhale, leaning in first and then drawing back as I took breath. Breath is God's blessing going back to Adam, and while so many celebrate the dead on Halloween, I preferred to celebrate the breath of life. For the dead, I had only my prayers. Oh, but these souls smelled good. <laughs> I was tempted to eat one. Temptation is not in and of itself a sin, not if you don't give in to it. Much as our Lord Jesus was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane, so too was I tempted now. But I couldn't have one of these souls, not even to test them. They were special. Each one was different, very different from the next. There was a chance I might be able to partake later. I thought one or more of these souls might go unclaimed, <laughs> but I doubted it. To the world, even to most of my parishioners, it was Halloween. I had made promises that were to be fulfilled tonight, this night, and no other. I was determined that I should do my part. Then, if someone didn't show, well, that was on them, wasn't it? Now, don't misunderstand me. The principal ingredients for these things were mostly the same across the board. To make a dozen soul cakes for the eve of All Saints' Day, 
One needed a pound of flour, six ounces each of caster sugar and butter, a few egg yolks, and two teaspoons of mixed spice. This was, of course, where one might get creative and personalize his souls, alternating between ginger, nutmeg, cinnamon, or spice, or whatever. Switching up between mixing in either currants or raisins, or really any addition would do, was another way to make each edible soul not only particular, but also uniquely delicious. <laughs> not bad for a first attempt, I thought, taking another slow, satisfying whiff. I peered out through the window over the sink, over my small front yard past the church. I didn't see any children out yet, but that was to be expected. I'd started early, best to be ready when they came. I had paper towels already laid out on the counter. One at a time, I scooped up the steaming treats with a spatula and transferred them over, four lines of three each. The placement was of paramount importance. Underneath the paper towels, I'd laid out a thin sheet of wax paper upon which I'd written the names of the dear departed in magic marker. Uh, the first of these was uh, dear old Maxwell Gregory, who'd hosted Friday Night Bingo these past 23 years, as well as our parish's youth outreach program. His soul would go to his eight-year-old grandson Elias. Uh, the last was Mrs. Agatha Tormund, gone only this past June. She'd played the pipe organ at St. Lucius for 52 years, and her daughter, May, who had children of her own as well as grandchildren, was eager to receive her spirit. I had a second sheet of wax paper also meticulously labelled to lay on top of the soles and to make double sure I made no mistakes in distribution. When finished, it'd be going into the 1.5-gallon Tupperware tub for the lot of them, at least until the festivities got going outside. I thought it likely my residence would be the last stop for most of those I expected to come calling, mainly children, but there were others who might come earlier. There were those who might come prepared to pray for their own soul cakes, on a whim or out of jealousy, but with whom I'd made no arrangements. I'd have an extra batch or two on hand for them, perfectly generic, but also true to the old tradition. They'd been missing only my special personalized ingredient, but neither they nor those with whom I had already prayed on the matter would be any the wiser. And the final ingredient, the thing that sets my souls apart, was an inspiration, that gift from God I mentioned earlier. I shall explain fully. I do want there to be a record of this for the one who will replace me. The tradition goes back to medieval times. A few still practice it, though certain parishes in my own native Sheffield still gave them out, as did many others in Portugal and the Philippines. The soul cakes, commonly called simply souls, were baked to commemorate the dead and were received either on Halloween, All Saints Day, or All Souls Day. It began with the poor, either sending their children out to beg for sweets or going themselves. Over time, churches took over the ritual, inviting the wretched, the, the needy, and the grieving to their open door, the clergy often promising to pray for the souls of the loved ones the supplicants had lost. The supplicants, in turn, again mostly children, would promise to pray for the dead all throughout the month of November. They offered up their songs and prayers to their benefactors as well, and to the friends of their benefactors. 
Many believed that this exchange eventually devolved into what is now known as uh, trick-or-treating, but in its day the ritual was known as souling. Coming out of seminary, I'd found myself in an excellent position to reawaken this most forgotten sacrament in America. It wasn't difficult to place myself in positions where I could do the most good. When the hospital calls upon St. Lucius in need of my special area of expertise, I am sent. When one of the three local nursing homes has need of my services, I answer. When the local hospice coordinator dials my number at three in the morning, I do not hesitate. Everyone around here knows me. My name is Father Robert, and I give the last rites. The squeak of breaking wheels and the clack hiss of an opening door heralded the afternoon return of the elementary school bus, reminding me that it was not only the eve of All Saints Day, and yes, Halloween as well, but also a Monday. They disembarked with their typical chatter, rather amplified, I suppose, by their anticipation of the coming night's candy hunt. These were the public school kids, not our Aquinas children. Yet there were several of them who attended Mass at St. Lucius. I could hear it in their excited voices. Halloween was back. I let out a sigh, slid open the knives drawer. From it, I drew out one of the smaller blades and held it to the light, checking for smudges, anything unclean. I smiled wanly at my reflection in its immaculate and polished steel. After two years of pandemic nothing, last year had seen the admittedly tentative resumption of trick-or-treating around the neighborhood. I wouldn't have missed it so much. Halloween is such a ghastly spectacle, such a flagrant blasphemy, but but it had also delayed the launch of my new tradition, so many years in the planning. And in a year when so many had died, particularly at the new Dawn Elder Care facility, that had been a trial. It had been, dare I say, a waste of so much perfectly good death. Or it would have been had I not always been a forward thinker. (laughs) I'd made my preparations, and I still retained everything I'd harvested in those two years of loss. Oh, and uh, there was the young Miss Becca Evans now, stepping solemnly off the bus rather than bounding from it, shouldering her small backpack rather than swinging it everywhere. She was, I guess, a fifth grader, maybe ten years old at any rate. It remains difficult for me to keep track of what ages attend which grades in American school. She and her mother remained regulars at St. Lucius, although her father's attendance had recently become patchy at best. She saw me, waved to me. I I waved back and then on impulse held up one finger. Wait. Her brother's soul was right next to Mr. Gregory's and they'd all had time to cool. I held it up, pointed to it, then to her. She smiled, crossed herself and went on her way. I prayed with her several times over the past two years. I'd taken her confession, trivial as her sins had been, more than once, although she remained a few years from her official confirmation in the church. Such a sweet child, just as her brother had been. Victor had been ten years old, just as she was now, when he passed in the year of our Lord, 2020. It was, strictly speaking, not what one would call a Covid-related death. 
Childhood leukemia and the coronavirus had nothing to do with one another as far as most people were concerned. But the toll the virus took on hospital staff, as I knew quite well, the constant and continuous patient overload produced consequences that had been as inevitable as they'd been predictable. Victor's treatments had too often been delayed, rescheduled, lost in the shuffle. It might not have made a difference in the end, or it might have. There was no way to know now. I lowered the knife to his soul, rich with the scent of ginger. The boy did like a cold ginger ale. There'd always been one on his hospital tray, complete with a bendy straw. But no, no. Best to do these in order, keep to the program. I brought the knife over Mr. Gregory's instead, closed my eyes, and prayed. Blessed are you, Lord Almighty God, who deigned to bless us in Christ. Grant that we who are renewed by the power of your Spirit may walk always in newness of life, untroubled by the temporary death of the flesh that is only a vessel for our immortal soul. Comfort us in our grief, protect us from all evil. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth and who will come to judge the living and the dead and the world by fire. Amen. I opened my eyes, laid the blade across Mr. Gregory's soul, and with meticulous care cut the sign of the cross into it. I could have done it with his mask, although one of his doctors or nurses had taken it off and replaced it with a respirator well prior to the time I arrived at the hospital. I could have done it with my mask, come to that. By now they'd taken him off the respirator as well. His breath came in shallow, pitiful wheezes marked by long seconds of silence, but they did come. Mr. Maxwell Gregory had survived the midnight ambulance ride from New Dawn Elder Care to William and Mary Hospital, a transition they'd labelled an emergency transfer, but there was no sense of urgency now. He hadn't eaten in days. He'd been receiving all nourishment and hydration intravenously for the past twelve hours. His numbers were falling, or so his attendant nurse had said. I couldn't make any sense of those numbers, the electronic chirps and blips that monitored his vitals. But I knew what I saw in front of me. I saw a dying man. I pulled up a chair, sat beside his bed, made the sign of the cross. I dutifully tried to lead the man through his act of contrition, though he made no outward sign in return. There was, perhaps, a response from the unknowable inside, from his soul readying for its own transition. I do not know, but I do have faith. I then opened my satchel and drew from it my Bible with bookmarked scripture readings as well as the anointing oil. There are several different ways of administering the last rites or viaticum. I continued with a quick prayer. Through this holy anointing, may the Lord in his love and mercy help you with the grace of the Holy Spirit. May the Lord who frees you from sin save you and raise you up. He'd been a widower, a man estranged from his daughters and sons, though three of them had flown in two weeks ago to say their goodbyes when his decline had begun to hasten. His eldest remained in town along with his grandson Elias. The others hadn't hung around, though, and they might not learn about this latest transfer until after the sun was up. It was 4.30 in the morning, and none of them had as yet picked up the phone. Following his anointing, I spoke the Lord's Prayer. I held his hand while doing it, keeping my protective gloves on, of course. One cannot be too careful. 
I ran my thumb over his wrist. I felt for his pulse and found it weak, slow. I gave his hand a gentle squeeze. He was my first, as the saying goes. Uh, Not in terms of last rites, you understand, and there was only so much of that he could actually participate in. One does not force-feed the Eucharist to a bloody vegetable, am I right? I did what I could have been reasonably expected to do for him, although I must confess that I may have inadvertently neglected a small step or two in my excitement. No, Mr. Gregory marked my first opportunity to procure the secret ingredient for soul cakes. They do say you'll always remember your first, and that's definitely the case here. I'll never forget. Quite often, a person who receives the last rites waits for them to finish, and then, as though contented from afar, passes on in short order. Once I had done all I could do for Maxwell Gregory, I reached back into my bag and withdrew from it a single sheet of cheesecloth, which I placed over the lower half of his face, covering both his nose and his mouth. I waited, saw it flutter, watched him breathe through it, watched him breathe into it. I waited some more, but not too long. A minute, certainly, and maybe as many as three, one cannot be too careful when time is a factor, so I eventually had to draw forth a second sheet and lay it over the first. I applied no pressure, I merely waited until necessity demanded I lay down a third sheet and eventually a fourth. Then, as though by divine intervention, Maxwell Gregory expelled his final breath and right where I had the cheesecloth to capture it. With trembling fingers, I lifted his soul cake from the paper towel and placed it cross up atop the cheesecloth that had captured his final breath. I had cut the sheets down to a manageable size earlier so that they were just large enough that I could fold the corners over it. I let the corners drop rather than pressing them down. Silently, I prayed to Almighty God that the cheesecloth yet retained that last breath Maxwell had exhaled into it, that its essence would transfer through the cross into the soul cake itself. I have faith that it did, but when I returned it to its place with the others on the paper towels and the wax paper, I left it in the cheesecloth wrapping, just to be sure. There, all dressed up and ready for his grandson to eat. Sort of a a human communion. Pleased with myself and grateful to God, I again lifted the knife so that I could cross poor young Victor's soul. Two hours later, with the last batch of generic soul cakes complete and cooling on the stovetop, I could hear Halloween taking over outside. There were ordinary houses as close to my little rectory as the rectory itself was to the church, and by the sound of it, kids were everywhere. Their choral, pre-adolescent cries of trick-or-treat raked my eardrums. And the grown-ups who opened their doors to them were so complimentary of their costumes, so encouraging, even those I recognized as parishioners of St. Lucius. Did they not know what blasphemy they were subsidizing with their candy? Did they not understand what the word heresy meant? Oh, honey, look, it's a goblin. I shut my eyes and sent up a prayer that the Lord might show them the error of their ways, that he would find mercy in his heart for those who participated in this sacrilege. 
And aren't you the most adorable little vampire couple ever? Love that red hair, kiddo. Here you go. Have fun. I paced my small kitchen. I would not look outside. I would not. And everywhere, everywhere, the sound of laughing children, that that incantation, trick or treat, trick or treat, trick or treat. Nor would I cover my ears. I had to listen for the door, for my door, where there were freshly baked souls for all who requested them and sundry. Oh my, it's an actual devil. How cute. The devil, I thought. You fool. You think the devil wears red and has horns and carries a fucking pitchfork, do you? The real devil manifests in grown women and men who perpetrate this outrage, who corrupt their own children, tempting them with fucking candy. But then, then there was a knock at my door, soft and tentative. My head cleared at once. The satanic tumult out of doors receded to background noise. My heart, which I'd hardly even realized was fairly jackhammering with righteous rage, slowed its rhythm. I had a thing to do here, promises to keep. I stood straight, took a breath, and put on my best beatific smile. It wasn't difficult to do. I went to the door and opened it. There stood May Tormund, wearing her long autumn jacket and gloves, her cheeks pink with the nighttime chill. Father Robert. Then, a bit of an awkward pause, she eventually went on. I'm sorry. I'm not sure what to say, exactly. Probably not trick or treat, I guess. I let it roll off me. I even managed a small laugh. (laughs) No, no, definitely not that, I said most agreeably. Then, uh, nodding to the kitchen, uh, just a sec, I went to get it. The perfectly baked soul of her mother Agatha, who'd played the pipe organ so beautifully and for so long. Through the mirror, I saw May kneel at the doorway, never crossing the threshold. Good, good, she remembers. I wondered which prayer or song she would have brought in exchange. Not that it really mattered, but I hoped it would be a song. I do enjoy a good hymn, a voice that sang fair and true, and right now my world was in special need of an antidote to all of that outside racket. Again, with cautious fingers, I gathered up the soul cake that had captured Miss Agatha Torman's final breath. I returned to the door with it, and most untypically knelt with my first evening parishioner, soul in hand. She closed her eyes. She prayed. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. With my free hand, I took one of hers and gave a gentle press, uh, disappointed as I was with her selection. Nevertheless, I took up from where she had left off. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. And I waited. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. I stood from her, though she remained kneeling. I put her mother's soul into the cup of her outstretched hands. I watched her eyes pool with feeling. I watched her eat it. And then I watched her eyes go wide. Yeah, I thought. They're good. I know. At length, she stood after me. By then, her eyes were streaming. I... I know, Father. She put a hand over her mouth. I tilted my head, curious... My mother, she's in heaven. 
I know. She... she... Spoke to you from the quiet of your heart? Of course your mother is in heaven, Mrs. Tormund. She nodded, still weeping. She turned to go, started to walk. I tried not to let it bother me that she hadn't even thought to thank me. I reminded myself that it was the Lord at work here. I was only his vessel. But then, most unexpectedly, she stopped. I know. As though I had somehow missed it the first time, or as though she had meant much more than I'd originally thought. But there was no way to follow up with her. May Tormund hurried off back into the Halloween night. There had been considerably more wait time with Agatha than was typical after I had administered her last rites. The worst case of this had been Victor Evans, who'd fought with all the tenacity of youth until the end, but Agatha was definitely a close second. At times like these, it was best to be alone with my charges. Family could only get in the way, and no one could know about the cheesecloth. No one could know how I caught the last breath with it. Not everyone would understand. Few understand God as I do. I know his will. It is on me to trust. Trust is difficult sometimes, and patience, though a virtue, has its limits. Agatha's daughter might return at any moment, and we were a mere ten minutes from the next scheduled nurse's check-in. It was an unfortunate necessity that I was compelled, at the last, to lay my hand over the five sheets of cheesecloth that covered dear old Agatha's nose and mouth that I had to hasten her journey. There was just no other way, and she'd signed the DNR after all. It wasn't like she was going to recover. It was a mercy and a kindness, a favor to God himself, when I helped him claim her spirit. It took five minutes, and it was terribly unpleasant, but there was no doubt the cheesecloth caught her last breath, and, if I may say, several breaths before. I felt every one of them against the palm of my hand. Once it got on to about seven o'clock or so, there was no denying the night had been a resounding success. I'd done three sheets of the generic soul cakes, those without my special ingredient, and I'd given out more than half of them. All in the plan, naturally. One does like to save some for oneself, doesn't one? <laughs> I'd also received all but one of my expected visitors, a few admittedly still in their Halloween costumes, and they'd all come prepared. Most had come with prayers, the Our Fathers outnumbering the Hail Marys by two. My favorite part so far, however, had been when the Mackenzie twins had come together and offered up a quite a beautiful performance of Blessed Assurance. I am sure it filled my soul as completely as it must have theirs. Naturally, in the back of my mind, I was concerned about the way May Tormund and I had parted company, but not alarmed. It wasn't as though she had outright accused me of anything. It could be that her mother, Agatha, had somehow conveyed to her the way I had helped her to cross that threshold of death. Such a revelation would naturally have an emotional consequence, whether positive or negative. Either way, it isn't as though I had crept up behind her in an alley and knifed her to death. <laughs> Poor lady was suffering. And it wasn't as though May could prove anything. 
But then seven became seven-thirty, seven-thirty drew on towards eight o'clock, and that, as I had made sure to explain to everyone, was when I would have to call it a night. So I waited. I left the door open, but I remained in the kitchen with my dozen and a half generic cakes and my last genuine spirit. Becca, where are you? Of all the supplicants I had anticipated this night, there were none whose eventual appearance I had been more certain of than hers. She'd lost her only brother. I'd reminded her right about her soul cake as she'd been coming off the bus. And unlike her father, Becca Evans was a child possessed of a faith that was as pure as it was innocent. I looked back to my open front door. Nothing. Only a voice, but it was her voice, travelling over nothing but wind, singing into my entryway like the breath of an angel. One piece like a I gathered up the cake and went to the door, and as one would expect, there she was, coming up the walk right now with her mother in tow. But that was much farther away than I would have judged by the sound of her sweet voice, never mind, she was here. I waved to them, inviting them closer with that beatific smile I'd perfected over so many years of mirror practice. Becca's mother leaned into her ear, whispering something, urging her on, no doubt. I was Father Robert. She knew me as well as any of the parish priests. She trusted me, and, more importantly, I owed her this. I had promised. She came forward alone, and, oddly enough, I saw only her mother in the background. Whether I turned my head right or left, there was no one left on the street. Told myself it was just after eight. The little ones would have had their fill of trick-or-treating by now. Becca advanced with her eyes blank of expression, the chorus of the hymn she had chosen slipping through her lips like a whisper, but ringing between my ears as though through headphones. It is well. And an echo, supplied by the suggestion of my own mind. It is well. Easy enough for my mind to do. It's how the song was supposed to go, after all. With my soul. She was at the threshold now. There, like the others before her, she knelt, still singing. It is well, it is well, with my soul. I confess I might have had a tear in my eye as I presented her with Victor's soul. From less than twenty feet away, her mother looked on, one hand with fingers over her lips, the other crossed over her chest. It was an intent look, the human version of the mother lion ready to pounce if need be. I hadn't the first notion of whatever the cause for her concern might be. Her father now, him, might have understood. He had lost his faith on the very night he'd lost his son, but not her mother, not her. Becca received the soul, just like everyone else, in both hands. She studied it, took a breath. Shadows in the street, figures unidentifiable from this far away, appeared from behind the backs of houses, from behind trees, 
crawling out from the undersides of cars parked at the curb. Becca shoved the cake whole into her mouth and worked it down her throat in three quick, savage swallows. She showed me her teeth. Her eyes glittered. You murdered him. There was no doubt in her voice. But worse, somehow even worse, was that the next thing she said wasn't even in her own voice. It was clearly, unmistakably, Victor's. You killed us all. It was easy, after the first murder, to change my own memories about each one. Maxwell Gregory, Diana Dobbs, Ethel Baker, superimposing how I had wanted the extraction of the last breath to go over what had actually happened. But it took time, as one might expect. The clearer memory I yet retained of what I'd done to May's dear mother, Agatha, was simply a case of its being the most recent episode. The case of Victor Evans, by comparison, was even simpler. I'd never have pulled it off had it not been for the Covid visitor restrictions, which only allowed for one at a time. There really was nothing like a global plague if you want to snuff out a sick child in isolation, especially one who had already had one foot in the shadow of St. Peter's Gate. Oh, but he'd been so strong, so very strong. He hadn't wanted to go. He needed help. Poor boy was suffering. I suppose that what I'm saying, in the end, is that I could not erase the memory of what I had done to Victor Evans because it was too awful to forget. The cheesecloth had not been enough for him. My hands over cheesecloth hadn't been enough. On Halloween night 2020, I smothered him with his hospital pillow, feeling his choked and muted death rattle through the pillowcase. Now I could see them coming for me, even as Becca backed away, her eyes never leaving mine, not the dead, but the living, each one singing in the voice of their lost loved one. It is well, it is well, with my soul, with my soul, it is well, it is well, with my soul. They pointed their fingers at me. They sang their accusation into the night. May Tormund must have gotten the word out right after she'd left me. Bitch hadn't wasted any time, I'll give her that. I slammed the door shut, locked it, held my hands over my ears. Useless. Their voices alternately shouted or whispered or sang at me. Liar! It is well. Kill her! With my soul. It is well, it is well, devil, with my soul. But they won't come inside, not into the rectory, oh, well, they haven't yet. And it's been hours, long, long hours since they began this torture. Where were the police? Where the fuck was everyone else? Why was this happening and how? Was it even real? (laughs) It's been all I could do to get this down. I've done my best to be honest, to leave behind an account that makes some kind of sense. You'll understand if I've been a bit distracted. The dead, it seems, really do have a rather over-amplified potential for communication on Halloween. 
They punish me from a distance. <laughs> the second hand on the clock twitches in place, but never advances. It's been 8.15 for so long. <laughs> I'm going mad. I do have a phone, but who would I call? What would I say? Help, I'm being punished with madness by the living and the dead on a Halloween night that may never end. I may be stuck in a loop or an echo of my sins for all time. Has the world moved on? How long have I been here? I'm trapped. Somebody help me. Please. You know the worst thing about trudging through a dark cemetery? Almost tripping over short headstones. Why go to the bother of a headstone at all if it's going to be so short? Uh, like this one for author Charlie Davenport. He's a short one. Uh, well, not him, actually. I'm sure he used to stand tall both in stature and amongst his peers. But this tiny headstone? Oh, shameful. Size matters, Charlie. I mean, look at me. I'm long, trust me. <laughs> well, long-winded, at least. But speaking of short and sweet, there was that one story Charlie wrote about Halloween candy. It, too, was short and sweet. Wasn't it Jeff Clement and Aaron Lillis on that one? Yes, yes, that's right. So you won't get tripped up on this story... The one about Mrs. Henderson. We let go of each other's hands. Sarah tucked her grandma's spirit board away into the grocery bag she'd brought it in and watched with the rest of us as the ash began to swirl around the vacant lot. Rapidly, the churning gray char began to pull itself together into something approaching a shape. Bricks, windows, and railings began to emerge out of the miasma until in front of us there stood the Henderson House, looking just as solid as it had in 94. The porch light came on, and Mrs. Henderson stepped out with that big old glass bowl we all remembered. There was no cheery grin, no crinkle around the eyes. Just this vacant, thousand-yard stare as she looked over the kids assembled on her doorstep. I let the others go first. Trick or treat, they said, sounding closer to eight than 18. Mrs. Henderson wordlessly grabbed up clawfuls of popcorn balls, candied apples, and her famous full-size three musketeers and dropped them into each of their bags. They came down the stairs already debating who had the best haul. Mrs. Henderson's gaze did not shift to greet me as I ascended the stairs. Instead, staring out at what remained of the neighborhood, she'd called home for longer than any of us had been alive. Trick or treat, I said. The dead woman pinched her eyes shut, like the sound hurt her. The house was already collapsing around her, back into the nothing from whence it came. Why do you do this? Thin tendrils of black smoke curled out from between her lips. 
why do you do this to me every year? I shrugged as I reached out and made my own selection. A bright yellow packet with bold blue lettering across its front. They just don't make Butterfinger BBs anymore. getting cold and late. Not sure how much longer I can stay out here. And who's gonna notice if I sneak away before midnight anyway? I mean, seriously, a cemetery for horror podcast people? (laughs) Seems ridiculous, right? Oh, well, look here. Speaking of horror podcasts, it's the grave of S.H. Cooper. My goodness, so many stories she wrote for us. And when she wasn't calling up horror for us, she was calling darkness for that other podcast. Um, oh, I can't remember what it was called. Oh, well, she certainly knew how to write a good Halloween story. Although there was that one story that was the worst. Uh, No, I mean, the story was fine. It was just, uh, well, uh... Uh, Who performed that one? Oh, yes, I believe it was a whole gaggle of folks. Like, uh, Sarah Thomas, Lindsay Russo, Atticus Jackson, Aaron Lillis, Ellie Hirschman, and Mary Murphy. Yes, that's right. You know, the story is great, the acting is superb, but that night, well, gosh, it really was the worst Halloween. Girls like Patty Bell King didn't go missing. The honor roll student, the neighborhood babysitter, the good girl. Especially not in 1992. Especially not in Hotter. The deaths had been tragic enough. Mrs. Eleanor King, 10-year-old Shelley King, still in her Hobbit costume, and Patty Bell's best friends, Alice Creek and Drew Campbell, all found inside the home on Halloween night. But Mr. King always said the disappearance of his older daughter was the hardest of all. Death provided an endpoint, an irrefutable finality. The not knowing, however, was a wound that festered, reopening with false hope at every tip line lead that went nowhere and the midnight calls from mouth breathers. He managed to stay in their home on Carpenter Street for a single year after, waiting, hoping, putting signs up all over town, despite everyone already knowing who Patty Bell was, even before her photo was smiling at them from every lamppost. Hodder's was a small place. If she'd still been in it, somebody would have known. When he left, interest in the case went with him, and the house on Carpenter Street came to stand as an empty monument to one of the worst moments in the town's history. 
And this has what to do with our plans for Halloween? Jamie eyed me over the top of her phone, one brow raised dubiously. I let my hands fall into my lap, disappointed my dramatic retelling hadn't landed quite as I'd hoped it would. Oh, come on, Jamie. Get in the spirit. Rob plopped on the couch beside her with a bowl of freshly popped popcorn. She's telling a spooky story. Is this for that writing thing you were talking about, Jen? What thing? Jamie looked between us, and I shrugged. My cheeks warmed beneath the weight of their expectant gazes, and I silently cursed Rob for putting me on the spot like that. He knew my writing was a sore subject, especially after I'd just received another email beginning with, Thank you for your submission. Unfortunately... Come on, spill. It's nothing. Just something I saw online. A podcast. People can submit scary stories for them to perform. And you think the old king place is going to inspire you? I don't know. Maybe? Never mind. It was just an idea. We'll go. I stopped mid-stammer and stared at Jamie. You will? Yeah. If you think a story's there, we'll check it out. Not like there's a whole lot else to do for Halloween around here. What about your marathon? Jamie's eyes rolled in a wide, slow circle. Oh, you're right. How could we miss out on the same movies we've seen a hundred times already? I hear the ending to Texas Chainsaw changes when you reach 101. Personally, I'm skeptical. But do we really want to risk it? Rob flicked a piece of popcorn at me. I batted it down with a grin. We hadn't missed our annual Halloween marathon in seven years. Not since deciding at ten that trick-or-treating was for babies and slasher films were cool. Doing anything other than taking over the living room at one of our houses and eating way too much crap while teens got slaughtered on screen seemed almost wrong. But not wrong enough to stop us from pulling onto Carpenter Street a week later. The Woodland Road was as far from town as you could get, while still being in hotter, with only a few isolated driveways breaking up the tree line. Rob crept along, headlights illuminating the odd mailbox standing at the roadside, looking for the one labeled 1408. Despite it being Halloween, there wasn't a single costumed kid in sight. While he'd originally been all for the plan, the further we'd driven, the more Rob's hands twisted around the steering wheel, betraying the nerves he was trying to hide with put-upon sighs and declarations that this was actually a pretty dumb idea. I sat forward, poking my head between the two front seats occupied by my friends. I did some more reading about the house since we decided to do this. Apparently, there's been a few disappearances since 92. None were able to be directly linked to it, but each person who went missing was supposed to be coming out here. There were searches and stuff, but nothing ever came of them. Creepy. Jamie's tone implied the disbelieving smirk, lost in the October dark. 
Want to know the weirdest part? Weirder than how excited you're getting over all of this? They all happened on Halloween. Of course they did. Because nothing ever happens on, I don't know, October 27th. Not getting spooked, are you, Robbie? (laughs) He yelped when she tickled the back of his neck with her fingertips, and we collapsed into a fit of laughter while he swore at us. Assholes. The car jerked to a stop. Aw, come on, Rob. She was just messing with you. Tell him you're sorry, Jamie. (laughs) I'm sorry, Robbie, you big fucking baby. (laughs) She giggled, extending her arms for a hug and making kissy noises at him. (laughs) He put his palm against her face and pushed her back before twisting in his seat. You said 14... Ew, don't lick me. Who raised you? Before Jamie could respond, I was between them. Leaning so far forward, my hands were planted on the center console as I peered eagerly through the windshield. A beaten, bent mailbox on a rotting post was just visible among the unattended vegetation. 1408! This is it! I can't see the house from here. Rob's fingers tightened around the steering wheel. Must be down the hill a bit, behind the trees. Should we go in? Of course! That's why we're here! I nudged him to get him moving. Okay, okay. Calm your tits. He's right, Jen. Don't get so excited. You know it's going to be all locked up, right? That's okay. I can walk around and look in windows. I just want to get a feel for it. See if it sparks any story ideas. Rob snorted as he turned into the property. Yep. You're definitely the weirdest part of all this. Our headlights cast all the cracks and crumbling edges of the driveway in stark relief as we drove slowly along it. Some parts were gone completely, reclaimed by overgrowth, and Rob complained about what all the divots would do to his shocks, but I hardly heard him my attention on what was ahead. The King House was unremarkable. A typical two-story from the 60s with a brick and vinyl facade. Boards had been hammered over the first floor windows and no trespassing signs plastered the front door. If I hadn't known its violent past, it would have just been another vacant house and hotter. Without waiting for the others, I pushed open my door, slung my messenger bag over my shoulder and jumped out. The night air was brisk enough to send goosebumps up my arms despite my jacket, and I stood beside the car, eyes closed, inhaling the scent of cold and pine, listening to the wind rustling through the trees, the distant call of a night bird. The stillness and the quiet closed in, blanketed in evening black, until it felt like I'd left the rest of the world behind, and all there was was me and the King House. It was an atmosphere that begged to be captured on paper. Rob's door squealed when it swung open, breaking my immersion. Huh. I thought it'd be creepier. 
The murders were 24 years ago. Did you think they'd leave the body bags in the front yard or something? I don't know. I just didn't expect it to be so... normal. It's pretty much exactly the way it looked the night it happened. Mr. King refused to ever sell it in case Patty Bell came home. But as far as anybody knows, he's never returned to Hotter himself. That's the problem with these urban legends. They never make sense. Why would he keep the house his family was murdered in on the off chance his missing daughter comes home, but never check it? Jamie clicked on her flashlight and ran its beam along the front of the house. It's not an urban legend. It really happened. The dead people bits? Sure. But all the other stuff that came after? The disappearances? Come on, Jen. Nobody's coming all the way out here just to see a house where a family got killed. People hardly even remember it happened anymore. (sighs) That's not true. A lot of people do. It was big news. Two decades ago? Yeah, but remember that guy who went missing a few years back? The metalhead. His friends said this is where they last saw him. They were having a party in the woods, stumbled across this house, he went in, and then never came out again. Oh, yeah. Didn't they find out he'd been talking about leaving out of town for a while? Like, he'd met a chick online or something? Frustrated with my friend's skepticism, I rooted around in my bag until I found my flashlight and flicked it on. It doesn't matter. I'm only here to see if it inspires anything. You guys can wait here if you're just going to kill the mood. Jamie stretched out my name into a plaintive call that followed me down a set of broken flagstone steps. Her footsteps came immediately after, and she latched onto my arm, pressing her cheek against my shoulder. I'm sorry. It's just a bunch of hocus-pocus, isn't it? A little Halloween fun? Don't be mad. I glanced at her out of the corner of my eye and couldn't stop the amused snort that escaped at the sight of her exaggerated pout. Fine. I shook her loose. But I'd be having more fun if you guys shut up. She pinched her thumb and forefinger together and dragged them across her lips as if she were zipping them up. (laughs) We giggled and arm in arm walked to the front door of the King House. Jamie hung back while I stood on my tiptoes and pressed my nose against the door's starburst window. Something, cardboard or poster paper, had been taped over the inside, blocking most of my light, and the textured glass made sure to obscure any spots where the edges had curled. I frowned and moved to the picture window, running my fingers over the plywood drilled in place to keep people like me out. Rob called from beside the car. I pointed my light at him and shook it back and forth. Not yet. I'm going around back. To do what? Try to get a look inside. Just stay in the car if you're so scared, Wobby. We'll be right back. It didn't take long for him to come trudging after us once we disappeared around the side of the house. This podcast better be worth it. 
The backyard was bordered on all sides by woods. Our flashlights barely seemed able to pierce the dark between the trees. A swing set still stood in the middle, more rust than metal anymore, its single remaining swing hanging low and still. I wasn't sure why, but I thought it would have been less creepy for it to sway a bit with the breeze. Maybe it would have felt like there was some weight to it. Maybe it would have felt less like someone could have been sitting in it. A small shudder ran across my shoulders, and I grinned. That was exactly the kind of creep factor I was after. Rob wasn't so enthusiastic. Okay. We're back here. Now what? These windows are boarded up, too. Jamie wrapped her knuckles against the nearest one. My flashlight trailed the length of the house, first along the second story, where the uncovered windows caught my light and glittered like black, unblinking eyes. Then along the first. When I stopped, Rob shook his head. No, 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 no. Jamie laughed giddy nerves making it tighter and higher pitch than usual, and grabbed my arm again. <laughs> what are the chances? My smile widened. It's probably from when the metal had broken. The cops must have forgotten it or something. I shined my light over the back door again, confirming it hadn't been a trick of the shadows. No, I thought, pulse quickening. It really had been left ajar. I looked to the others. Talk about lucky, huh? Yeah. A real Halloween miracle. A swarm of butterflies set off in my stomach, and I chewed my lower lip, studying the sliver of interior visible through the door. Nothing moved. No ominous creaking as it swung open further on its own. Just a door just a dark house. I stepped toward it, hand outstretched. Rob grabbed my wrist, making me jump. You're not serious. I just want to take a quick peek. That's breaking and entering. That's like a felony or something. Except there's no breaking. Jamie splayed her palm against the door giving it a push. It scraped inward on sagging hinges. Can't really be a crime if it was left open, right? I readily agreed and shook Rob off to stand in the doorway. Dust swirled at our entry, sending tiny motes dancing in the twin flashlight beams Jamie and I cast around the room an unfurnished kitchen with pale green vinyl floors and white tile countertops. An archway directly across from us led further into the house. Great, you've taken a look. Can we go now? Rob had lowered his voice into a hiss, like he was worried someone might hear us. Just go back to the car. We won't be long. I entered with Jamie clinging to the back of my jacket. This is a bad idea, guys. 
We ignored him and crossed to the archway. A closed door and a set of stairs leading up sat to the left, but the right opened into a living room that fed into a narrow hallway. Save for a few scattered things, a broken lamp left in the corner, a couple toys small enough to have been forgotten under a couch that was no longer there, some scattered papers. It was as empty as the kitchen had been. The air was stale and settled thickly against my skin, a dust and mildew mask. Jamie detached herself and nudged a walnut-sized bouncy ball with the toe of her shoe, watching it roll down the hall. Getting any ideas? Not yet. But there's something here. I can feel it. I just need to find it. Sure. Sure. She followed the ball to poke her head in the open doorways it went past. I swept my light around until it came to rest on the front door, where two four-by-fours had been nailed across the entrance, preventing it from being open. If Mr. King really had been waiting for Patty Bell to come home, that seemed a weird way to show it. After a quick peek up the steps from the landing, I tried the door beside them. It opened easily, revealing a second stairwell going down. A nervous thrill shot through my belly, scattering the butterflies again. The basement! I screamed at the sudden whisper in my ear and whirled around. Jamie reeled back with a loud laugh to avoid my swinging flashlight, her hands held up in apologetic defense. <laughs> Easy, killer! It's just me! <laughs> you scared the crap out of me! I didn't mean to. <laughs> her continued snickering said otherwise. Hey! Did someone scream? You guys okay? Rob appeared in the archway, face pale in the pitch black. It somehow found a new shade of white to turn when his gaze followed Jamie's flashlight to the open door beside me. Oh, come on, guys. Not the basement. Haven't all our horror movie marathons taught you anything? Yeah. I shined my light beneath my chin and flashed him a toothy grin. All the good stuff happens in the basement. Uh. Rob groaned as we linked arms with him and tugged him towards the door. You've come this far. You might as well see it through. Reluctantly, he allowed himself to be led onto the first step, where he stopped just long enough to say, I just want you guys to know, this is officially the worst Halloween, and I hate you. <laughs> We cackled all the way down the stairs. Shelving units of leftover paint cans, old cleaning supplies, and all the odds and ends the fix-it of the family insists they'll definitely, probably need for a project someday, filled half the L-shaped basement. Jamie perused them while Rob perched on an old washing machine, his leg bouncing anxiously. I stepped over a kid's bike laying on its side, silver and pink plastic streamers dangling from its tarnished handlebars, and dragged my jacket cuff across my nose, 
itching with two decades of undisturbed grime. An abandoned basement, I thought, nodding slowly. It was a good, classic place to begin a horror story. Put something in it, something that drove the old owners away and stocks the new. A bit cliche, but with a little creativity, the beaten path could lead somewhere unexpected. I just had to figure out where that was. I gazed thoughtfully around, searching for further inspiration amongst the remnants of the king's former lives. A flicker of light from the back wall made me stop. The figure gazing at me from behind it made me scream. By the time Rob and Jamie had rushed to my side, I was laughing. (laughs) What's going on with you? I gestured toward the wall, my hand limp with relief. I thought I saw someone back there, but it was just my reflection in a mirror. Okay, there's your idea. Mirror in a creepy house. Let's go. Hold on, hold on. I walked toward the mirror. It was a simple oval of glass ringed in black plastic. Nothing fancy. With a little embellishment, I could do something with it. Did mirrors come with iron backings? What were the fancy, ornate ones made of? I made a mental note to look into it. Mirrors. Mirrors. What kind of creature would be associated with them? Vampires? No, they don't have a reflection. I stared at my face, scrunched in thought. And as I considered my options, a strange feeling crept spider-like up my back. Something's not right, it whispered, and the not-rightness thrummed in time with my heartbeat. But what was causing it? I half-turned. Jamie and Rob were still standing behind me, her with her arms crossed and her lips pursed in a bored expression, him shifting his weight back and forth between his feet. I glanced again at the mirror, studying the reflection. The bike. It was standing upright in the mirror. A pile of folded laundry was on top of the washing machine, right where Rob had just been sitting. (gasps) I spun again, so quickly that I startled my friends and froze. The cobwebs that had filled every corner were gone. The damp pile of boxes left molding against the wall were too. And the bike was standing, propped up by its gleaming metal kickstand. You okay, Jen? Jamie seemed uncertain if I was putting on an act to scare them. There must have been something in my face. A fear too real to be leading up to some joke. Because the doubtful smirk that had been starting to tug at her lips faltered and fell away. Look. Behind you. The... The bike. The washer... You're seeing it too. 
right? With the same hesitant uncertainty, she and Rob turned. What? Fuck. It's... Uh, clean. We gotta get out of here. Rob was already inching towards the stairs. Jamie's wide eyes bound mine. What is this? What's going on? I... I don't know. My mouth had gone dry, and the words almost stuck to my tongue. Rob hissed from the bottom step. Figure it outside! He was right. We had to get out of there. I grabbed Jamie by the wrist and dragged her after me. I didn't remember the stairs being so noisy when we'd come down but each one groaned beneath our weight as we climbed back up, loud as alarm bells in the quiet house. Jamie's nails dug into my arm, and I could feel her shaking breath on the back of my neck. I clung to her too, and Rob's sleeve in front of me, paranoid if I let go, I'd somehow lose them. The door at the top of the stairs was closed. We left it open, didn't we? Without answering, Rob curled his fingers around the knob and pulled it open just a sliver and pressed his eye to it. It couldn't have been more than a few seconds, but the time he spent looking felt like long, agonizing minutes. When he pulled back, his face had gone slack with dazed miscomprehension, and I tugged his sleeve until he turned to me. It's still dark, but... He trailed off, gaze drifting back to the door. I gave his arm a shake, silently urging him to finish the thought. But there's stuff, furniture. Like, people are living here. No, that's crazy, right? That's, That's impossible. Jamie's whole body was trembling. You have to be wrong. This house was empty. To prove it to us, or maybe to herself, she rushed past and wrenched the door open to spill out into the living room. Her light darted around, first to a matching floral patterned sofa and loveseat, then to a boxy TV with wood paneled sides, over to a bookshelf of VHS tapes, framed photos on the wall, a runner rug leading down the hall she'd followed the ball into earlier. She gaped. Lips twitching like they wanted to form words, but couldn't remember their shape. My heart drummed against my ribs, hard enough I thought it might break through them and burst out of my chest. I had to brace myself against the wall as I followed her out of the stairwell, my own flashlight snapping back and forth. The front door! The boards are gone! Rob threw himself at it. He twisted the knob, yanked, made a frustrated sound when the door remained shut, and pulled again. It didn't even rattle in its frame. What's going on? What's going on? Panic was beginning to seep into his voice. I could see it spreading to Jamie, sending her pacing back and forth in tight circles like a caged cat. It clawed at me too threatening to rip my thoughts into meaningless ribbons. 
I couldn't let that happen. I'd made them come here. It was my fault. Whatever was going on, I had to get us out. Come on, let's try the back door. I took Jamie's hand. She followed obediently, her fingers squeezing tight around mine, and Rob came hurrying after. Together, we rushed into the kitchen, where the back door still stood open. Jamie released a desperate, relieved cry. We'd been so focused on getting out, we didn't even notice her until she spoke. We shrank into each other, our flashlights leaping toward her voice. A woman huddled against the cabinets under the sink. Her legs were curled beneath her and she was hugging herself. The orange pumpkins and candy corn dancing across her sweater had been splattered with dark streaks. Thick streams of red poured down one side of her face, over her eyes, dripping down her nose and mouth, all flowing from her split, partially exposed skull. Shelly! Where's Shelly? Her body slumped forward and she began dragging herself. Hand over hand toward us, leaving a crimson trail on the pale green floor. Her palms slapped against the vinyl as she pulled herself along. Slowly at first, but becoming quicker the closer she came. We all screamed, grabbing onto each other in a burst of terrified scrambling as we made for the door. Her shrieking chased after us. We practically fell over one another into the backyard, and Rob slammed the door behind us. The chains on the swing set creaked. A girl sitting on one of the swings, the one that had been hanging so stiffly when we arrived, was watching us tumble out of the house from beneath a cheap, curly wig. Her sheet cloak's hem brushed the ground behind her. Tears glistened on her cheeks, and blood glistened on her chin. When she opened her mouth, more red bubbled out, and so did a gurgling, plaintive sob. I might have pulled Jamie, or she might have pulled me, or maybe Rob pulled both of us, but the night turned to a blur and we were running around the house, up neatly lined flagstone steps bordered by flickering plastic jack-o'-lanterns. Where's my car? Fuck it, just keep running! But my car! Come on! We crested the hill, ready to flag down oncoming traffic. But the road was vacant. And we made a breathless, barely coherent agreement to continue to the neighboring house. Our feet pounding against the pavement reverberated in the silent night, our gasps and panting the only other sounds. The trees to either side were completely still. We passed no trick-or-treaters, 
No families. No cars. Just us and the empty woodland road. Jamie finally stumbled to a stop and doubled over, her hands on her knees. No houses! I leaned against a nearby tree to catch my breath. What? We should have reached a neighbor by now, but I haven't seen any driveways. Rob stood in the middle of the road, fingers laced together against the back of his neck. He looked back and forth like he wanted to argue with her, but we both realized she was right. There should have been another house by now. What the fuck is going on? I don't know. I raked my hands through my hair. We could have missed them? The neighbors? We were panicking and... No, no, I was looking. I would have seen one, but it's just... It's just... Woods. I don't know. Fear carried my voice further than I'd meant, and I took a few deep breaths to try and calm myself. We know there are houses around here. Let's... Let's get off the road. Go into the woods just a bit. We'll find one. Into the woods? But I was already walking toward the tree line. All the houses on Carpenter Street were set away from the road. It was easy to miss the driveways in the dark, I told myself. If we just walked through the woods a little bit, we'd find one. Find help. It was the only thing I could think to do. I turned and waved impatiently for them to follow. They traded reluctant looks, but fell in step behind me. Dead leaves crackled beneath us, which did nothing to ease my frazzled nerves. I kept waiting for the woods to clear, for there to be lights and voices and safety. But we kept walking, and there kept being woods. I saw someone. We all jerked to a stop. He pointed. And for a moment, all I saw were more trees rising against the dark, until a figure came shuffling out from between two trunks. Hey, over here. We need help. The figure stopped and seemed to be looking at us. There was something about the way he swayed, subtly, stiffly, that raised the hair along the back of my neck. No. I tried to tell Rob, but he brushed off my concerns, too eager to believe we'd found the help we were looking for. Probably had a bit too much to drink at a Halloween party or something. He set off at a jog. Jamie and I had no choice but to follow him. Hey, man. You have a phone? His question caught in the back of his throat. The man we'd run to reached out, groping the air in desperate lunges that we dodged with short yelps. Please, please help me. His long hair hung in matted strands against his face, 
stuck in the blood and ichor weeping from his empty sockets, down the front of his Iron Maiden tee. Help! 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 But we were already running, screaming through the woods. I collided with a girl clasping the sides of her head. We fell hard, scraping my elbows and knees as we rolled. She grasped at me, eyes bulging, and cried for us to help her get home. Her hands left bloody prints on my shirt where she grabbed me. As I tore myself away, I saw raw, jagged holes where her ears should have been. Jamie and Rob yanked me to my feet and we backed away, all clinging to one another, only to bump into a large man in a ballerina costume. He tried to speak but could only produce tortured moans around the stump of his shorn tongue. We screamed and ran again, and as we did, we passed more of them drawn by the sound. Some in costume, some not. All bleeding from either their eyes, mouth, or ears. We managed to avoid their reaching hands, slipping through red-stained fingers and shouldering past those that got in our way. By the time we broke free of the tree line, our clothing stretched and torn and smeared with strangers' blood, we had lost the last of them and collapsed to our knees. My flashlight rolled from my shaking fingers. Rob heaved and barely had time to turn his head before he threw up. When I heard the chain creak, I knew why. The king house stood in front of us. The little girl, her back to us, was still on her swing. She didn't move when Jamie released a piercing, terrified wail. She still didn't move when another girl appeared behind Jamie yanked her head back by her hair and jammed a pair of scissors into her open mouth. Jamie gagged, hands clawing at her throat, her tear-filled eyes swiveling toward me and Rob, who sat frozen, only feet away. Her attacker ripped the scissors free and sank them into Jamie's chest. be right this time. She kneeled over Jamie as she slid sideways. She didn't even acknowledge we were there. This time. It happened so fast. Her arrival. The attack. And then she had Jamie's tongue sitting in the palm of her hand. Dark rivulets of blood streaming down her wrist and arm. Rob howled. A sound so furious and frightened that I slapped my hands over my ears, and he plowed into her, driving his full weight into the girl. She shrieked, dropping Jamie's tongue, and the two of them were tangled on the ground. 
Rob was shouting something, maybe words, but it was impossible to make them out. He was trying to wrestle the scissors from her. I tried to get up, tried to get to him, but my legs refused to work. They wobbled beneath me and I staggered only a step. She drove the scissors into his side. Again and again until he fell away from her, clutching his wounds. It was only when she got up to follow him that I could force myself to my feet and I lunged at her. I caught her by her blood-slick wrist and she turned with a snarl. I hadn't recognized her at first. I'd only seen a few pictures, school headshots and with the cheerleading squad, but they'd all showed a pretty girl, her blonde hair in neat waves, smiling sweetly. There was none of that sweetness now as she shoved me away. Patty Bell? She jabbed the scissors at me. I'm going to get it right. One night, one night. I have one night, but this time... What are you... Patty Bell leapt at me, slicing the air. But I stumbled back, tripping over Jamie as I did so. Going down saved me from the vicious swipe. Jamie saved me. I crawled away in a panic scuttle, barely able to think anything except of my friend's faces. Their terror. Tears blurred my vision. I could hear Patty Bell following me in quick, angry stomps. I didn't think about grabbing the branch lying in front of me. My body did it on its own. I felt like I was merely an observer, watching as I pushed myself up and turned with a wide swing that drove Patty Bell back. There are only a few hours left. You're the last. You're the last. This time I'll get it right. Get what right? I swung again when she tried to find an opening. The ritual. I... Every time. But not again. I'll get it right. I'll be free. There was a wild gleam in her eyes. A feverish determination that made me think of a rabid dog. Why are you doing this? Her tongue darted out, licking her lips. They promised me power. That I could have everything I ever wanted. I just needed the sacrifices. I did it. Shelly, Alice, Drew. Mom was just in the way, but that shouldn't have mattered. I summoned them. I did what they said and they still trapped me here. I shook my head, not understanding. All I could repeat were tearful whys. She babbled on through gritted teeth, and I wasn't sure she was even aware she was still talking. I gave them everything they asked for. The ears, the eyes, the tongues. On their night. It had to be Halloween. It always has to be Halloween. That's when they feed. That's when they grant power. Who? 
fucking lying demons! Her gaze fixed on me. And for a single moment, ice-cold clarity glowed in her blue eyes. You'll be the last. I'll do it right this time. I'll get out of the mirror. I'll finally get my power. The mirror. The bellows startled both of us. Patty Bell had time to turn, her scissors half raised, before Rob barreled into her. The pointed ends disappeared between them as his charge carried them both to the ground for a second time. I started for him, but he shook his head. Dark blood oozed from the corner of his mouth. Run! Patty Bell squalled and thrashed beneath him, and when she wrenched her scissors free, they were dripping with fresh gore. Rob met my eyes as she buried the twin blades in his neck. Her furious keen chased me back to the house while she struggled beneath my friend's dead weight. I passed Shelly King, still in her hobbit costume, on the swing, and threw open the back door. I didn't let myself think about my friends, who had both only come to help me, who had both ended up saving me. I didn't let myself think about the marathons we'd never have again, or Jamie's obnoxious baby voice she used to annoy Rob, or how Rob would never listen to any more of my writing things. I forced all that aside, blocking it behind two words. The mirror. The mirror. The mirror. Eleanor King looked up from her spot huddled beside the cabinets, features twisted in despair. I ran through the archway, skid to a stop at the basement door, and flung myself down the steps. I narrowly avoided tripping over the bike with the pink and silver streamers. The mirror. The mirror. The mirror. Footsteps thundered overhead. I grabbed the mirror off the wall. The basement stairs clattered with her coming. I held the mirror up. I could barely make out my reflection in the darkness. Behind me, a shadowy figure with an upraised arm was charging. I closed my eyes. Suddenly, there were no racing, enraged footsteps. The air smelled stale and thick as it settled against my skin. Tears escaped down my cheeks, and a shuddering cry racked my body. When I could bring myself to open my eyes again, it was to pitch black, and I had to grope along the wall to find my way back to the stairs and up into an empty living room with a boarded-up front door and covered windows. I looked around the room, numb and cold, and then down at the mirror still in my hands. 
only my dirty face stared back. With a heartbroken scream, I hurled it as hard as I could back into the basement, where I heard it shatter in the dark. Before what happened to Jamie and Rob could catch up with me, before the guilt and the pain and the horror could take hold, I dragged myself to the back door, pausing only once to glance around the kitchen. Rob had been right. This was officially the worst Halloween, and I'd never forgive myself for it. That's about it for me. I need to get home. Back to the fire where I can sip my whiskey and fall into a deep slumber. I've long given up on no sleep. I need plenty of it these days. Ah, no sleep. I had such fun with that old show. I'd get all dark and sinister sounding and proclaim things like... In our final tale. (laughs) Ah, what a lark. And speaking of larks, look whose grave this is. Hard to miss it, really. I mean, the coffin is encased in reinforced concrete. Metal bars covering it. Thick locks ensuring he can never rise from the grave. (laughs) Seems much ado about nothing, really. I mean, the old mummer man himself is long dead and buried. I can't imagine him coming back any time soon. That's all just legends and folk tales anyway. No, no, Mr. Peter Lewis is stuck down there for good, living only in our hearts, minds, and bladders, probably. I recall one tale he performed in, along with that dashing Canadian lad, Matthew Bradford. Yes, yes, it was author Gage Eggleston who masterfully penned that story. So rest peacefully, Peter. Don't let the legends raise your spirits. After all, it's really all just folklore. the thing that lives beneath the stairs. I am behind you when you turn out the lights, and I am under your bed when you wake in the dark. Feel my presence when the air grows cool and crisp. Hear my name carried in the breeze like the rustle of dying leaves, like the flutter of crows' wings when they unperch from a barren oak. I live upon the lips of children when they scatter to darkened streets, clad in white linens and silly costumes. They say I have haunted this sleepy town for the past thousand years. I am the autumn and the harvest. I am the wail in the night and the chill in your bones. I am the boogeyman. 
There was a time that the sound of my name made men clutch books of gospel to their chests. They first knew me as Satan, but with time they invented new names. Ghost, Spectre, the Jersey Devil. I wore many forms when I struck fear into the hearts of men. I was spirit, I was haunt, monster, poltergeist, Beelzebub, Bigfoot, Mothman, witch. But time has passed, and my power wanes like the great slice of alabaster moon that hangs in the sky. Your kind have forgotten the face of dread. The secrets of the world opened themselves to you and you deconstructed them, recorded and catalogued them. You built networks of libraries and forums that dispel mystery and destroy myth. An effort to convince yourselves that you are safe in your homes, that I do not exist. It was like sucking marrow from my bones. You have lost your uncertainty. The only thing left to fear is each other. That is why I am here in your bedroom, child. The summer heat has broken and the season of superstition is upon us. The old stories are snaking through town and my names are once again in the street, on the playground, beneath the pews. I am made alive in childish teases and hushed whispers. They bless me with the strength to perform again. Do you recognize me? descending from your ceiling. Were you awaiting my arrival? You do not resist as I slip beneath your skin and blanket you in darkness. Know that you were carefully chosen. I watched you across suburban streets and through classroom windows. I saw your lonesome school bus rides, your friendless lunchtime meals. And just as I followed you, you followed the girl. Perhaps it was her popularity that intrigued you, or the enticing curve of her body in the cheerleading uniform. What made your interest blossom into obsession? What tinged your fascination with hate? I am wearing you like a garment as I flip through your notebooks, and her likeness is fresh on every page. I admire the ways you have mutilated her. That is why you are my prized selection. In this way, tonight is not something I am forcing upon you, no. It is something we will do together. Can you smell the latex as we slip the mask over our head? Do you see its clownish grin when I position us in front of the mirror? You are only a passenger now, but I allow you to retain your senses. Even so, your muscles are oddly slack. There is no fight in you when I slip the kitchen knife from its block. I am still weak. I will need your strength when our blade finds flesh. The last of the light is drained from the sky when we step onto the porch. 
The sidewalk is littered with sweets and wrappers, trampled by passing ghosts and mummies and fairies, and we are among them now, painted orange beneath the street lamps, shoulder to shoulder with children who skip along the bricks, swinging pillowcases full of candies, who sing wicked songs punctuated with ringing doorbells, who kick holes into jack-o'-lanterns toothy grins, who warn of zombies and chupacabras and most of all the boogeyman. I hope you can feel our body trembling in revelry. We are, all of us, intoxicated upon the sweet nectar of fear. To fear is to believe, and children, bless your beautiful little souls, believe in everything. I am older than the stones we walk upon, but this night I too am a child. I can feel you stirring in our skin when we come upon the girl's home. The driveway is barren. The house is blackened and shuttered, save for the warm glow of a window on the upper floor. There she is, above us, dancing in silhouette. Her shape is lithe, her movements shy and suggestive. A mating dance. Animalistic heat rises within us, lust and fury intermingled. It will not take much to placate you. The only thing that keeps us from her is a pane of glass. This place may be foreign to you, but I have been here many times. I lead you through the darkness and guide your hands to the rupture in the lattice beneath the porch. The crawl space beyond is just big enough for our body, but I am frail. I cannot break this seal on my own. I ask now for your strength as we pull. If desire burns hot within you, if you care for the girl at all, give me your might. <sighs> Very good. We are prone in the soil with breath rattling in our mask. The trap door is just ahead. Is it my hand or yours that tremors when we reach upward for the latch? Quietly now we clamber into a space dark and soft. A closet. We are blind in this darkness, but I do not need eyes to see. Appreciate my deftness as I navigate this unknown chamber. Witness my grace when I move us from room to room. Up, up, along the staircase into the gloom above. I carefully shepherd your feet from step to step. A winding path which avoids the planks that would groan beneath our weight. We glide like a dancer up the second flight and across the hall. We are outside her bedroom now, you and I. Our fingers are taut as we press against the door. It creaks open and the sight behind it leaves you quaking within us. She is on the bed, coiled around herself in a naked embrace. We stand ghost-like in the doorway as she is lost within her passion. You demand our legs spring forth and punish her, but I plant our feet and attend in shriek as I force you to stand and savor this moment. Watch as she writhes. Observe the flesh tensing and relaxing. 
Trace the path you will carve into it. Dwell a moment on the gift I bequeath you. Oh, the girl catches sight of us. There is only time for a sharp intake of breath before I loosen my grip and allow you to perform. Hmm. When you are finished, the mask is in tatters, and I must pry our fingers from the handle of the knife. Calm yourself. Hmm? This next stage of the ritual is most crucial. Bend with me as I kneel before the altar you created and dip a palsied hand into the blood. Rise, and I will anoint you. Now, approach the mirror and pay tribute to the god who blessed you. Write my name. Our body tightens when fingertips meet glass. Go on, little one. Why are you afraid? Write my name, and I shall become your shield. Allow me to absolve you. Your invocation will sustain me. Give me legs to wander this world another year longer. That is all I ask in return. Ah, your wrist eases and you begin to paint. When you pull your hand back, I see the name scrawled across the glass is not mine, but your own. An understandable mistake. Your chest still heaves with exhausted breaths. Your skin vibrates with thrill. I am not angry. Smear away the blood and I will help you scribe the words. But you do not move. Hmm. Even as I try to manipulate your limbs, muscles resist, joints calcify. Oh, as the puppet cut his strings, I deepen myself within your mind and sift through tissue. The human anatomy is complex circuitry, but my skilled hands know which connections to sever, which wires to cross. My fingers root around in the folds of your brain and press on triggers, releasing hormones, pain, fear, response, cortisol production. I take no pleasure in feeling your body shudder. I do not enjoy starving your lungs of air, twisting your arteries, or bursting the vessels behind your retinas, but I will do it if you insist. We stand for hours watching each other through eyes glassed over with blood. In the mirror's reflection behind your autograph, your face contorts into a smile. You know, as I do, that the dawn is coming. I can feel its light break over the hills and wash away the stains I dyed into the land. Sweet boy, do you understand what you are doing? Would you kill the boogeyman and deprive the world of its only caretaker? Huh? You have thrust a dagger into my heart. Be kind to the one who understood you, who enabled and encouraged you. Please write my name. Oh. You hold firm and watch me flounder. I open your throat, and through your mouth I ask, what are you? And now, at last, 
you speak? Just a boy. Shafts of light filter through the blinds. I am at once uncomfortable in the flesh that encases me. I relinquish control and become formless again, nothing but a cloud of miasma that floats above you, watching as you collapse into the bed next to our creation. Whatever body I have is failing now. My tendrils of cognition are blinking out one by one. I cannot feel the quiet terror behind the schoolyard. I cannot hear my name reverberate through the alley. There is only this room. My vision falters, and the last image I see is you peering skyward to better watch me unravel into the abyss. I see now the world that man created. This is no place for legend. The walls you constructed those many years ago stand tall and unbreachable, and though they might keep beasts at bay, the shadows they cast leave you shivering inside. I suppose there is nothing more for your kind to learn, no fairy tale that can disarm you. After all, what use is a scary story in the mouth of a monster? There is naught to fear. You are the one that skulks about in the dark. Very well, then. I will not cling to a realm that no longer needs me. I will pass you the torch that sets the world aflame. With the torch passed, it's time for me to leave. Farewell, my friends. Composer Brandon Boone and his Moogie headstone. The mausoleum for our production team. Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. The tall, transformer-like memorial for our former content manager, Olivia White. And that special headstone that emits a creepy noise in the wind. The Whistler Grave of Editor-in-Chief Jessica McAvoy. Farewell to all dear friends. And to anyone else who can hear my voice. Thank you for putting up with an old man and his stories. You really do mean the world to me. I guess there's nothing left to say before I close the cemetery gates, other than brace yourself for a happy Halloween. This audio program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. 
No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without written consent of Creative Reason Media. Yeah.